Um, if you are here for the first time or if you are relatively new uh, to our church, this is a very unique and special season that we're in. Did you know that this year we are celebrating our 40th year of ministry? Yes, please clap. God has been good. God has been faithful. You have been faithful. And yes, we will have a major celebration this year. Uh, more details to follow. In our 40 years, we've been blessed to have two senior pastors. Two senior pastors in 40 years. And what a blessing. And I think we're getting close to calling our third senior pastor, who will be um, our chief among equals with the elders. We're an elder-led church. Uh, so this is a very, very special time in the history of Grace Church Waldorf. And I just want to say, over the last eight or nine months, um, I really want to thank the elders of this church. These men have stepped up to the plate, and they've done a marvelous job. Uh, they've done a great job preaching. In addition to our elders, we've had missionaries who've come in. They've done a wonderful job. Last week, we had Mark Wilson. Uh, a shout-out to Rick Rogers with uh, working on our missions. That's been really special. And, of course, we've had some special guest speakers uh, over the last eight or nine months. And I hope um, you've enjoyed them. I hope you've been touched. I hope you've grown through their preaching of God's word. Uh, as I mentioned, um, I don't know when I mentioned this, but the second week of January of this year, Pastor Bruno was supposed to be here. But due to the snow, uh, we, we canceled that visit. So I remember calling him that Friday uh, of that weekend. I said, it looks like we're going to get four to eight inches of snow. So let's just cancel your visit, and, and we'll reschedule it. I didn't want him coming down in the snow. Obviously, I wanted um, to have church and to have a number of people here. Uh, so he, he agreed. So when I got off the phone with him, it kind of hit me. All right, he's not coming down. But we still, we may have church, and I need to get a message ready for that Sunday. And so my objective was, all right, I will pray through a topic Friday and just come into the office and work all day Saturday to put a message together uh, for, for Sunday. So I remember waking up Saturday morning, and my wife Kathy asked me, do you know what you're preaching on? I said, no. <laughs> I hope to know within 15 minutes when I get to the, uh, the office. She said, well, I'll pray for you. I said, well, pray for snow, okay? <laughs> pray for snow. Well, we, we got the snow, but I still came in, and, and, and I, 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 I prepared a message because um, with the exception of my wife, the elders, and a few other people in the church, um, you may not be aware of this, but I've been working on a situation for several months between two churches that involves discipline and restoration. And so this subject of restoration uh, was clearly on my mind. And so when I got to the office that Saturday, God made it very clear to me that I needed to prepare a message on restoration, which I did. Of course, um, the Lord answered my wife's prayer. Uh, church was canceled, but you're going to hear it this morning. So, when you think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is the ultimate bottom line of the resurrection? It's restoration. It's restoration. 
The purpose of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is restoration. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus was given for us in order to restore our relationship with God once and for all. Restoration. Now, there are many factors that will break our relationship with God. Doubt, fear, but ultimately sin. Sin is the one thing that will separate us from the heart uh, of our Heavenly Father. So, I love this, I love this verse that Paul writes in Colossians uh, 1.22. He says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, the result of Christ's death is redemptive. Okay? It's to present you holy and blameless in his sight. So the whole picture, the whole story of restoration is beautiful. It's just beautiful. It's a gift. I mean, it's amazing. So this subject of restoration um, has, has been on my heart uh, for a, a long time because of a situation that I've been involved in. And I want to share with you the story of this situation because I, I want you to understand um, a, a couple of things. And the first thing I want you to understand is um, that in the church, the universal church, Oftentimes, we don't do discipline and restoration well. And when we don't do it well, lives get hurt. It impacts people. It impacts communities. And you know what? It stains the kingdom of God. It stains the kingdom of God. So before I go there, let me pray. I want to pray. Our Heavenly Father, I... I come before you, I humbly come before you, uh, recognizing it is a privilege to stand before these saints, uh, to share your word from, from this pulpit. Father, I pray that you would truly speak through me, that my words would be your words, that I would handle the word of God correctly. I pray, Lord, that you will be glorified in, in this message. Lord, I also pray that when we leave here, in some way, somehow, we'll all be transformed just a little bit more to your glory. I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are Grace Church of Waldorf. We are part of the Caris Fellowship of Churches, formerly known as the Fellowship of Grace Brethren Churches. So we're in the Caris Fellowship, which means every church in the Caris Fellowship is autonomous. In other words, we determine our own budget, we determine our own governance, we determine how we will worship. We're autonomous, but we belong to a fellowship, and it's great because it's healthy. And being part of a fellowship means we do things together. For example, uh, we're part of the Chesapeake District of Churches. Every church in the United States is part of a district. We're part of the Chesapeake District of Churches, and the Chesapeake District is part of the Northeast Regional um, Area. And so as pastors, we do things together. We encourage one another. We train each other. We pray for each other. We support each other. Uh, I happen to sit on the executive board of the Chesapeake District, and I also sit on the uh, assist board, which is our church planting uh, uh, of movement. Uh, and I sh only share this with you because I want you to understand how I got involved in this situation that I'm about to share with you.
So, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving of 2018, I received a text message from a young pastor who had recently started his own church from one of our churches in the district. And he sent me a text saying, Dennis, can I call you? It's urgent. Now, I vividly remember that text because, one, it's right before Thanksgiving. I was in my desk, in my, in my office, and I had spreadsheets all over my desk. I was working on the church budget. And quite frankly, I really didn't want to be disturbed. And I didn't want to be disturbed by someone from outside my church. But you never blow people off, okay? You always do what you can to help people. So I told him, absolutely, call me. He called me within 60 seconds. As soon as I answered the phone, I knew he was in trouble. Because he, he became very emotional. Actually, he started to cry. I could barely understand a word he was saying, but the gist of his message was, the senior pastor of my sending church is getting ready to prosecute me because I embezzled money. I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to give you some background information that will help you understand this situation a little bit better. And without getting into a lot of unnecessary details, this young man had been the worship pastor of the sending church for five or six years. Um, and when, when he was hired, he informed the executive pastor of that church that he had a side business. And in his side business, he could purchase music and sound equipment at cost. The executive pastor said, hey, love to have you do that for us because I get that. Any way you can save money for the church is a good thing. However, nothing was put in writing. And like Matt Duransky, one of our elders, says all the time, policy is our best friend. So it was sometime in October of 2017, about three or four months before he launched his work. Matter of fact, it was a year ago this Sunday that this young pastor launched his work. So it was 20, uh, October of 2017. And the executive pastor called me. He said, Dennis, can I come down to Southern Maryland? It's about two hours away because there's a situation with this young pastor, and I'd like to get your input. And so I met with the executive pastor and the senior pastor at the Calvert Church uh, to give this guy some, some counsel. When we met, the executive pastor shared with us that the new worship leader of their church was, who took over the position was looking at some old invoices of some expenditures and noticed that that young pastor had overcharged the church. Right? The agreement was he'd purchase equipment at cost. He'd overcharged the church and didn't tell the church that. So they had an investigation, and what he did was he would order equipment, put it on his personal credit card, then reimburse the church. And the church is about two months late in reimbursing him, and he was incurring um, interest. So he started to add the interest to the invoices, but he, he didn't tell the church. So as we listened to the story, uh, the senior pastor from Calvert and myself said, all right, um, this wasn't a good business practice. We get it. But his intent wasn't to defraud the church, okay? I mean, he just, 
He needed to work on his administrative skills, but his intent wasn't to defraud the church. And we felt that this was nothing to prevent him from starting his church. The executive pastor agreed, and we said, hey, this would be a great teaching moment for him. So the, the pastor agreed, and life went on. He started his church in January, very, very successful. His first Sunday, 185 people, and he was averaging 140, he's been averaging 140 people all year in that church. Um, as a district, we were supporting that work. We were just rejoicing in that work. Uh, part of the assist board, uh, we were working with them. We were rejoicing and just an amazing work, and it was exciting. All right? Are you with me so far? Good. All right. So back to the phone call right before Thanksgiving. As he was sharing this story with me, all right, he said that he, he was telling me that he had charged the church a little bit more. I said, I know that. I get it. He says, well, no. There's more to this. How much more? Well, I charged the church a lot more than just interest. How much more? Well, I'm not sure. I didn't keep good records. Yeah, well, no duh. All right, can you give me a ballpark? Are we talking $1,000, $1,500? No. It's between twenty dollars and $30,000 and maybe even more. In addition, I just recently lied to them to cover my story. And I may have falsified one or two invoices. May? Well, I did. Stunned, I had to ask the question, what would you like me to do? All our churches are autonomous. I had no authority. I had no jurisdiction over him or the sending church, and neither did the district. I said, so what would you like me to do? Well, at that point, he became very, very emotional. He says, look, the senior pastor of the sending church wants to prosecute me to the fullest extent of the law. And, and, and unless I, I resign from my new work, resign from the fellowship council, resign, um, uh, pay full restitution, then he says he needed to confess his sin before the sending church, confess his sin before his church, confess his sin before the fellowship council, confess his sin before the district, confess his sin before the Karis Fellowship. All within 48 hours. Oh, by the way, he also lawyered up, so now we have an attorney involved. So this was an absolute complicated mess. My question, what would you like me to do? He asked if I could dispute this. Could I mediate this dispute on behalf of the district? I said, well, I'll certainly think about it. Uh, I made a number of phone calls. And I went back to this young pastor saying, I will do this, but you needed to request this mediation to your sending church. Okay? They have the jurisdiction. And if they're good with it, I will certainly do that. Any, anything we could do to just, you know, make this work, I, I, I was in favor of. So the sending church agreed to the mediation. They asked if I would lead the mediation. I agreed and asked if I could, br if I could bring the senior pastor from, from the Calvert Church with me. Uh, so we did this together, but I took the lead on the mediation. We met on December, December 11th in the evening upstate in Maryland. And 
um, we had two sides, obviously. We had the sending church, and we had the senior pastor, his executive pastor, two of his associate pastors, and the chief elder. On the other side, we had the young pastor and his two elders. And prior to uh, the mediation, I had requested from both sides to send me a pos uh, position, uh, uh, a summary of your position, uh, of your of your allegation and what, we th what you think we should do. All right, give me a position paper to include scripture that would support your position. Now, you can only imagine um, how each side uh, approached this. Uh, the sending church was hurt. Oh, they were hurt. They were angry. They felt betrayed. Uh, recently, they'd actually given their entire staff a pay cut. So here they have a, a, a pastor on staff who's embezzling money. They were hurt. So the first scripture they sent me was 1 Timothy 3, saying, hey, this man doesn't even qualify to be an elder anymore. And they included a number of scripture on, on church discipline. Now, the other side, they sent me scriptures on love, forgiveness, peace, right? And, you know, all, all you know, relative, right? But I had to sort through this. But my priority, first and foremost, I was going to make sure that this process would honor God. Because I wanted an agreement that would honor God. Because you know what? This was affecting two communities. These two churches were 30 miles apart, and they were affecting two communities. And I did not want the kingdom of God to be stained. So again, we met on December 11th. Folks, <laughs> to say that the atmosphere was tense... It's a major understatement, okay? Uh, we met for four and a half hours. And I can tell you the first two hours did not go well. Both sides were angry, all right? The, the, the young pastor was angry because all he could think about was that his former senior pastor was going to prosecute him. That's all he could focus on. After two hours, I called a caucus. And I said to the young pastor and his two elders, go in the side room. I'll be there in a minute. I walked in, and this is really not my personality, because if you know me, I'm, I'm a peacemaker. But I walked in, I looked at this young man, and said, knock it off. Knock it off. You need to own your sin. You've embezzled over $30,000. You haven't repented. You haven't asked for forgiveness. You're talking about what this pastor could do to you. And by the way, in churches, we all have insurance. Now, we have insurance here to cover embezzlement, but in order for the insurance to pay out, you have to charge the person, right? So the senior pastor said he could prosecute him, but all he heard was he was going to. But I looked at him to knock it off and deal with your sin. You need to own your sin, you need to ask for repentance, and you need to forgive. He goes, well, but my lawyer says, I don't care what your lawyer says, I care what the word of God says. And if you want this resolved well, you need to own it. I said, by the way, don't even come out of this room unless you're ready to deal with this. And I walked out. I was kind of shaking because it's just not my personality. <laughs> all right? But I walked out and I went to the sending church today. You know, we're going to wait here. I I'm not sure what's going to happen. Well, 30 minutes later, 30 minutes later, um, this young man comes out. And he asked if he could read a statement. And I said, well, Sure. I'm really happy to say in his statement, he owned it. He owned his sin. He took full responsibility for his sin. He asked for forgiveness and he repented. 
folks, I can tell you, as soon as he did that, the room got 10 degrees warmer. You know, I looked at the sending church, and just their demeanor had changed. Their posture had changed because he showed some humility. And, you know, at that point, we've been in this for about three hours or so, and it took us maybe 45 minutes or an hour, and we were able to work out a settlement agreement that was mutually acceptable to both parties. But let me say this, and I, I really want to be clear. There are consequences for sin. There are consequences for sin. Now, I can't get into all the details of the settlement agreement, but one of the stipulations we made in the agreement is that he would go back to the sending church and he would confess his sin before all the elders and the staff of that church. Now, they asked me to, per to participate, and I went up a week later, and he did this. He spent 20 minutes confessing his sin, and part of the agreement for that meeting was that we would not get into the details, the particulars, particulars of the sin, but we would allow the staff and elders to share their heart. And share their heart they did. For one hour and 45 minutes, they let this young man have it. I mean, they were hurt. They were betrayed. It caused a lot of damage. They lost families over this. But at the end, they forgave him. They forgave him. Another stipulation of the agreement is he would go back to his own church and confess his sin before his church. Now, we did not stipulate that he would have to resign from his church because we thought that was up to the elders to make that determination. But another part of the agreement is that the senior pastor from Calvert and myself would work on a discipline slash restoration plan uh, to help him, that we would recommend uh, to him. And part of the discipline plan is we asked him to resign from his work. His two elders really weren't happy about it, but after talking to them, we felt it was the best best interest of that church and the sending church for him to resign because there are consequences for sin and quite frankly at this point he's not qualified to be an elder he's not above reproach all right consequences for sin now we also worked on a restoration plan because this message is about restoration and I can tell you uh, we just finished it a couple weeks ago but we put forth a restoration plan that this young church accepted. And it's, it's a lot to it. It's a, I, I, it's a lot to it. I can tell you, with the right heart from this young pastor, um, with the Holy Spirit, I believe this young man could be completely restored one day. I believe that. All right? um, the, end of the, the final chapter of the story has not been written yet. But I believe it can be restored one day, uh, possibly to that work or maybe to another church. I don't know if it will happen. Don't know if it will happen, but I believe that it can happen. And I believe that if it does happen, this young pastor will be a better pastor. He'll be a stronger pastor. And if he gets restored to that church, I believe that church will be a healthier church. Because when we do restoration well, we all win. 
And by the way, he's already been restored to the church. He just hasn't been restored to leadership. I want to make that very clear because when he confessed his sin to his church, they embraced him. Yes, they've lost a few families, but the bulk of the church embraced him. Unfortunately, in the body of Christ, we do not always discipline or restore well. But when we do it with the right heart and using the word of God, the kingdom wins. The kingdom wins. At the end of the mediation, I received a letter from the sending church. And uh, they just all wrote a number of different thoughts to me and to the other pastor at Calvert. I just want to share a couple snippets from what the senior pastor wrote to me, uh, which I thought was very meaningful. And I'm just, just bits and pieces. He says, I had almost lost confidence in our fellowship to be able to intervene in this matter. But I'm reaffirmed that when we do things well and through the Holy Scriptures, God wins. He says, I believe we have many hard conversations to come, but I believe we're on the right track. And I believe one day that this young man could be a spiritually qualified leader. And I want nothing more for than that to happen. All right? But he needs to be broken, and he needs to go through a restoration plan. But I believe he will be useful for the kingdom of God. Why this is so significant to me is prior to the mediation, this pastor was done with this man. He was done with them. He wanted him out. To have, and he felt he was useless for ministry. But when things are done well, hearts change. Hearts change. I want to give you another example of when you apply God's word to a situation like this, the kingdom wins. I want to take a look at the restoration of a man who literally denied Christ. It just wasn't an attitude or a thought. It was three times, and it was a, a, a verbal, curse-filled denial of even knowing Jesus. You all know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Peter. I'm talking about Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was in the inner circle uh, of Peter. And you know what? Peter did some amazing things for the kingdom. But I love Peter's story because Peter's story is my story. And I believe Peter's story is probably your story as well if, if you're honest. Peter is me. I think Peter is us. And that's what makes his story so personal. And as you read through the Gospels and you look for Peter's story, again, his story is really our story because it's a story of, of grace. It's a story of love. It's a story of restoration. And it's a story of renewal. So who is Peter? What do we know about Peter? Right. In Mark, first chapter, we read, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men, and immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. So what do we know about Peter? He's one of the first disciples to follow Jesus. Of course, that's Peter, right? We know that Peter walked on water, right? We read in Matthew, and Peter answered him, Lord, 
if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he, knew he was afraid and, be and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, there's a whole message in that scripture, right? When your eyes are on Jesus, we're good. The moment we take our eyes off of Jesus, what happens? We sink. We sink. Peter was the first to acknowledge who Jesus was. In Matthew 16, 15 through 18, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It was Peter who was significant in the start of the church, the church that we know today. And of course, who else, right? Um, it was Peter who defended Christ at his arrest, which I always found amazing because, you know, shortly later he denied him. But it was Peter, only Peter would do this. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That was Peter. Peter was obviously a close friend of Jesus and part of his inner circle. I mean, he walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He, he was personally discipled by Jesus. And Jesus used him to start his church. Yet he denied Christ three times. Three times. Look at this. Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing, again, warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with them? Peter again denied it. And at once, the rooster crowed. He denied being a disciple of Jesus Christ. What was Peter thinking? What was Peter thinking? What was going through this man's mind? I mean, how would Peter ever overcome this tragedy? I mean, would forgiveness be the reward for everyone but Peter? I mean, come on. He didn't deny Christ once or twice. He did it three times. Hello? Can anyone relate to this? I mean, can you really relate to this? I mean, do you, do you ever feel like your life is so overwhelmed with mistakes and sin that forgiveness and restoration are completely out of the question for you? 
You know, the story I shared with you about this young man in the fellowship, it's very much like Peter. Very much like Peter. This young man, this young man was a rising star in a fellowship. He was the youngest man ever to be elected to a fellowship council. I have to tell you, this young man is brilliant, and I believe with all my heart and soul, he loves the Lord. But I bet you even today, he's probably struggling a little bit with forgiveness and restoration. That would be my guess. So when Peter received the news that Jesus had risen from the grave, and when he had seen the empty tomb for himself, do you think he was thinking that Jesus would either um, uh, forgive him or judge him? Probably judge him, right? That's probably what I would think. Look, there's a very, very small verse that we sometimes overlook in the Easter story. But it drives home the point of the resurrection or even the restoration uh, for us. Now, Jesus has risen from the dead, right? He has made himself known to the disciples, and he encounters two very discouraged disciples on the road outside of Jerusalem. We know that story, the road to Emmaus. So he tells them of all the things that have happened and how he is the Messiah. When they recognize him, they return to Jerusalem, and they find the other disciples. Now, this is the final part of the report, okay? You don't, you don't, you don't need to turn to Luke, but it's in Luke 24, 34, where it says, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's all we know of the story. We don't know what was said, right? We just know that Jesus had an encounter with Peter after his resurrection. I personally believe that Jesus restored Peter uh, privately. I, I honestly believe that. Right? Now, in, in, in John uh, chapter 21, by the way, if you have your Bibles, I do think we need to open our Bibles every once in a while. Um, if you have your Bibles, go to John uh, chapter 21, please. And we're going to start with verse 15. Uh, allow me to read that. Sometimes I like hearing the pages turn. I think that's kind of cool. All right, chapter 21, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was now grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And I love this part. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. Three times, three times, Jesus encounters Peter with the question of his love because Peter had denied his love for Jesus three times. 
But listen, Peter's restoration was made complete with the same words that his relationship with Jesus had begun. Follow me. Follow me. I, I love this story. I love Peter's story because Peter's story is my story. It is my story. And I think it's probably some of your story. And we all need to know, folks, we need to know this. If you just hear one thing I have to say today, you need to know that the risen Savior is willing to welcome us back even when we have disappointed him. And I have disappointed our Lord, unfortunately, too many times in my life. Remember, he is faithful even when we are faithless. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have a little bit of Peter in us, right? If we're honest, okay, sometimes we're all weak in the face of temptation. Uh, we've all dropped the ball way too many times. And sometimes we allow fear to paralyze us. Maybe. Maybe some of you have got the spiritual scorecard reminding yourself of how many times you struck out. I hope that's not the case, but maybe you have. Or you may even have assumed God's grace has reached its limit with you. But the same Peter who denied Jesus three times ended up being one of his boldest and greatest witness. Okay? On the day of Pentecost, all right, Peter boldly declared to a crowd that Jesus is the Messiah, and over 3,000 people were converted. And later, in Solomon's portico, Peter preached a sermon on repentance, and over 5,000 people were saved. And after Peter and John were arrested and brought before the high priest, Peter bravely defended his faith in Christ and told the elders that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this was said by a man who denied Christ three times. Whoa. Whoa. Peter's me. Peter's probably you. Now, this is only true to a point because the actual denial of Peter as such can never be repeated. Yet I think we all deny the Lord in our own way at times. But you know what? God's grace flows abundantly to me, to you, to all who believe in him as their Lord and Savior. Remember, the same Christ who conquered the grave has also conquered your sin and your shame. So what's the application this morning? What's the application for us this morning? Over the years, I've, um, I've met several people who believe that due to the severity of their sin, they believe they cannot be forgiven, which means ultimately they believe they cannot be saved. That is a lie. My own father-in-law believed that until three weeks before his death and he received Jesus Christ as his Savior. Do not believe that lie. We have a great adversary and he wants you to believe that. God can forgive you. God wants to forgive you if you're willing to repent and seek him. Every Sunday morning, the elders of this church meet with the preaching pastor and we've 
pray over the preaching pastor. The elders prayed for me. We pray that we would speak the word boldly. Uh, we just pray for the service. But we also pray every single Sunday that this would be the Sunday that somebody would be reconciled to Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, that's our prayer. We will always pray that. Because today is the day of salvation, friends. Maybe you know Christ, but you've stumbled or, or, or you've uh, fallen. Maybe you even have gotten stuck in a hole and you just can't get out. Maybe you're in a place in your life that you don't even want to get out of that hole. But the good news is Jesus wants you to get out and Jesus is willing to pull you out. Right? He's willing to clean you up, to empower you, to love you. Then he says, follow me. It is never, ever too late. Ever. It's never too late to get out of, that, out of that hole. Hey, look, Peter got stronger and stronger after he was restored. And yet, despite all of Peter's stumbles and, and falls, which continued throughout his life, the name Jesus had given him, Rock, really came into reality. Peter was a rock. He's a rock star, in my opinion. Right? Peter was a rock star. His humility, his devotion, his, his experience of the Lord's forgiveness kept bringing him back, but not by his own power, by the love of our Savior, the grace of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was his Savior, his Master. What does Peter's life and actions really say to us? I hope... I hope it says renewal. I hope it says forgiveness. I hope it says it's not too late to be used by the Lord. Because he says, follow me. It's never too late. It's never too late. I have no idea what, every, what you all are going through. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to deal with. I pray that you would. Because you can... Please, you could be used for the kingdom. It is never, ever too late. I honestly believe this young pastor I talked about, I honestly believe if his heart is right, if his heart is right, he can and will be used for the kingdom. And I, I, I hope I see that. You know, God's grace flows abundantly. John Newton was a wild, living sailor, and slave trader who got saved and became a godly pastor and author of many fine hymns to include Amazing Grace. He said late in his life, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, two things. One, that I am a great sinner. And two, Christ is a great Savior. Even if your past is not as wicked as John Newton's, you should, be, you should be growing in your awareness of those two great facts. And the longer I am a Christian, I become more acutely aware of my own wickedness. But oh, how I appreciate the grace of our Savior. Ah. Now, the story of Peter's denials is recorded in Scripture to underscore these two great facts. Number one, the weakness and sinfulness of even the most prominent saints. And two, the greatness and abundance of God's love and grace toward, towards those who fail. Has anyone failed? 
Should be a loud amen in here, folks. We're all sinners. Okay? So for those of you who are walking with the Lord, Peter reminds us to take heed lest we fall. And for those who, who have fallen, the story holds out hope of forgiveness through God's abundant grace if you will turn back to him. It is not too late. Do not believe a lie. I'm going to close with this. Peter wrote these words to encourage us, and especially encourage those who, who seek to have a restored life in Jesus. And it's actually 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to close with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I love this. Kept in heaven for you. Oh, we have so much to look forward to. All right? God's grace is absolutely amazing. Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing. And Lord, I thank you for stories like, like Peter to remind us that, Lord, um, we all can be used by you. That it's never too late. That you are the God uh, of healing. You're the God who restores. You're the God who can use us. And Father, I pray, oh Lord, that you would use us. Lord, if there's anything in our lives that we need to confess, Father, I pray that we would do that, that we would do this sooner rather than later. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Um, finish this message in our hearts. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.